You're listening to the podcast, So You Want to Be a Writer, with Valerie Koo and Allison Tate. Valerie is an author, journalist, and national director of the Australian Writers Centre, which is one of the world's leading providers of online and classroom courses for people who want to get published and write with confidence. Allison Tate is an Australian freelance writer, blogger, and author with more than 20 years professional writing experience. Each week, they explore the world of writing, publishing, and blogging to bring you news and opportunities, advice on how to succeed in the world of writing, interviews with top writers, and much more. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 18 of So You Want to Be a Writer. My name is Valerie Koo, and I'm here with Alison Tate. How are you, Alison? I'm very well, thank you, Valerie. I'm just sitting here all rugged up in my office waiting for enlivening conversation. Are you ready to enliven me? (laughs) (laughs) And the pressure. Are you there with your fingerless gloves as we discussed last week's episode? Not only my fingerless gloves, but I also have a dressing gown on over all of my clothes. So there's a glamorous, (laughs) very, very glamorous image for for our listeners. Thanks for that image. What have you been up to this week? Uh, I'm editing. I've got lots and lots of editing on my plate at the moment. I'm uh, doing some uh, sort of line editing on the typeset version of book one of my series, The Mapmaker Chronicles, and I am doing the structural edit on book two. And I'm also making notes um, for book three. So Wow, I, you're yeah, a machine. I'm, yeah, well, I don't know if it's a machine so much as a stressed out <laughs> <laughs> Just a massive stress level, shall we say that. What about you? What have you been up to? I have been typing on my typewriter. Ooh, your typewriter. <laughs> what, your new vintage typewriter? Or... Yes. Oh, there you go. I think uh, so regular listeners will know that we spoke about my thing for vintage typewriters and I w- sort of wand- I decided to have a um, – artist's date with myself, you know, what Julia Cameron refers to in the artist's way, because I don't get out enough to, on my own to go and do these things. And um, I actually went to the Finders Keepers markets in Sydney recently, because Uh I thought it'd be interesting to see what other creators and other makers are doing, you know, and and they're all there under one roof. And I stumbled upon this store and I basically fell in love. And uh, I will put a photo in the show notes, but uh, there were all of these vintage typewriters, some of the retro typewriters and a couple of vintage typewriters, and there was this one particular one that I thought, oh, my God, it's just so beautiful. So what did you get? What is it? What colour is it? Well, it's it's a 1921 Corona 3, it's called, and I'll put a photo Ooh. in there. And um, uh, I, I just, you know, I ummed and I ahed and I decided, you know what, you only live once. And YOLO. <laughs> exactly. Were you suffering from FOMO as well? Well, I would have suffered from FOMO had I not, you know, obtained the typewriter. But um, I, I got it and um, I've been staring at it and every night I just sort of open it and look at it and run my fingers on it and um, put in a piece of paper the old-fashioned way. Because I remembered the typewriter my dad had, not that, not that he's that old. <laughs> and, and I started typing away and it's it's a very different kind of feeling and um it's uh I did some research on the typewriter and it's actually uh the typewriter the first new typewriter that Hemingway ever owned and it was given to him by his fiance he had owned used typewriters before that but this was his first new typewriter which he was very fond of and it's actually um one of the first portable typewriters around so journalists used to take it out in the field because it kind of could fold up and put it you know fit in a nice little case so it's quite cute as well so basically I've been sitting here each night typing (laughs) look at you go so are you actually typing a novel on the Hemingway typewriter or are you being a little more prosaic than that at first, I was just typing just random The quick crap. brown fox jumped over the lazy dog. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> just, you know, Fabulous. typing. Right, okay. You know, whatever. Well, you you can keep us updated on that. <laughs> but last night, so and I was just even typing, I was watching um, Law and Order is for You and just typing the things they were saying. 
But <laughs> I know. You are desperate. <laughs> yeah, I was a bit desperate. Last night something kicked in and I was like, oh, my God, this is amazing. Something's actually kicked in. I, to be honest, I think it was triggered by the weird sentences I was typing from Law and Order SVU and out poured, you know, the start of this story that um, that hadn't been in my head but was emerging as I was typing and it was just a great feeling. So I'm keen to see where that goes. Fantastic. Well, we'll look forward to updates on that, Val. Yes. Excellent. So what else have you been doing apart from buying typewriters? Well, um, some of the links that I discovered uh, this week were actually in, um, related to the typewriters because, of course, I started <laughs> researching these typewriters and I came across this really interesting blog, um, which some readers may know of, uh, but it's oztypewriter.blogspot.com com.au we'll put the link in the show notes and it's basically the blog of a guy um, called Robert Messenger and he runs the Australian Typewriter Museum <laughs> which is in Canberra <laughs> who'd have thunk it he's a kindred spirit he's a kindred spirit and he blogs about typewriters and about the history of typewriters, about different typewriters and what they're used for. He's got lots of great pictures of typewriters. I'm keen now to go and visit his museum. Clearly. But for anyone who's sort of interested in, you know, vintage typewriters or typewriters, it's a great little blog that, um, you know, tells lots of interesting stories. And even more interestingly, um, or equally interestingly, he has a blog roll of other typewriter aficionados around the world so you can go and get lost in for hours as well. There you go. You can start your own typewriter blog now that you've got, you know, you can be, I like the photo of him at the bottom surrounded by typewriters. I think I would like to see a photo of you like that, Val. (laughs) That would be ideal. One day when I have more typewriters. So what else have you been doing apart from, you know, absorbing yourself in the life of typewriters? Oh, let's see. I think um, I came across an interesting link this week um, uh, that was called Author Approved Writing Implements because you had previously mentioned that George R.R. Martin does all his writing on an old DOS machine running WordStaff 4.0. Yes. But this actually goes through some other famous writers and the tools of their trade. So, yeah, it's interesting because Neil Gaiman uses a fountain pen. Of course he does. A specific brand, um, the TWSBI Diamond 540. (laughs) And, um, you know, J.K. Rowling uses good old-fashioned loose-leaf pen and paper. Mm. Agatha Christie uh, preferred writing on her Remington Home Portable Number Two machine, and there's a cute photo of that. Maybe that should be next on my typewriter list. Sounds like it. Danielle Steele writes all her books on a 1946 Olympia Manual typewriter. It's you wow. know, I just wonder if these people are going to discover word processing. Um, <laughs> they don't need to. Exactly. <laughs> Danielle still sold so many books that she's typed on her typewriter. She can do whatever she wants. This is true. Uh, Stephen King describes his Waterman fountain pen as the world's finest word processor. And, um, yeah, so it's a really interesting link that goes through various writers, including screenwriters, on what they use. And um, what do you use, Alison? I use an Apple Mac. (laughs) I'm so boring, but that's what I do. I love the big screen. I love the fact that I can have two documents up side by side so I can see exactly, you know, where my notes need to go and what I've done. Mm. And I I, I mean, it was very funny because I had a little conversation on Twitter the other day. I noticed I've got – a keyboard that's quite old. My new Mac did come with a new keyboard, but I didn't like it at all. It was too small. It didn't have all the extra bits on the end. Oh, yes. So I'm still using my old one. And I noticed that my E key has almost faded out to zero. Like there's almost nothing left of the E left. And the S key is well and truly on the way. So those are clearly the two that I use the most. Mm. And I was like, I put out a, a tweet saying, what's your key? what does your keyboard look like? Like which ones are missing most for you? And it was quite interesting because other people, like their A key was well-worn or their mm. um, their T key was another one that came up as being quite well used. But um, I'd be, yeah, I'd be really interested to know. Do you have, have you got an old keyboard? Have you got any worn letters, Val? Well, interestingly, the most commonly used letters in the alphabet 
generally in order are E, then T, mm-hmm. then A, then O. Oh. Uh, yeah. So those should, in theory, be the things that are most used. But obviously, So my E's working well. So what's going on with my S then? Maybe it's because I've got an S in my name. Ah, uh, there's that's that. That's what it could be. Could Mind be. you, I've got, I've got T's and A's and that's nothing going on there. <laughs> oh, but well. Anyway, it's a mystery. People um, can't handle using my keyboard because they – they sit at my computer and they look at the keyboard and they go, I can't type because all my keys have gone. Oh, you've got no letters left. <laughs> no, maybe Q is still there. How long, but... have, you, how long, how long have you had your keyboard for? <laughs> I'm impressed. So I don't even notice it until people try and use my keyboard and they tell me that they can't. Um, because I don't even notice it because I, you know, obviously I touch type, so it, I, I guess I just know where the keys are. But, um, yeah, most of my keys are gone. Oh, you're going to have to go to a fountain pen any minute now, Val. Well, now I'm going to use my Ernest Hemingway oh, typewriter. <laughs> so what have you discovered on the interwebs this week? Well, I um, found quite interesting. We uh, at the Writer Centre, obviously, um, we celebrate student successes. So we have, um, you know, graduates from our different courses that that uh, go on to do amazing things. And teaching the magazine and feature writing courses, I do. Um, you know, I get great pleasure out of seeing student bylines in different publications. But one story I found quite interesting this week was written in, um, I think it was the Good Weekend. Good Weekend, yeah, yeah. Um, And it was written by Catherine Rohde, who's an AWC graduate, and she wrote a piece about, it's called Everlasting Life, about how social media allows people to live on after their deaths. Mm. And I found it really quite interesting because it's if you are a person who does have a lot of different social media things going on, different presences and stuff like that, there's not only the notion that people can set up a Facebook page in your honour and everybody can come and like it and talk to you and all that sort of stuff or sort of not talk to you but whatever. Um, But there's this idea that you have all these accounts that are open and they're all over the place and do you have a plan in mind for what's going to happen to them should something happen to you? And I realised that I don't and that, you know, I've got 26 different passwords for 26 (laughs) different things and that, you know, really, like if, if somebody had to then come in and tidy up my social media presence um, after an untimely demise, they wouldn't even know where to start. Now, do you yeah. have, have you got a plan for this? I mean, apparently you're supposed to make a plan for this. Wow. No, I which haven't. Which I haven't, yeah. Even, no, I mean, considered. no, I have not got a plan for this. Maybe it's something that I should consider, but I guess in the scheme of things, if I died, I would have other priorities <laughs> rather than just my social media. Well, possibly of- you would. But one thing, like I remember seeing on the, um, uh, th- and this goes back a little while, but I watched a documentary, I think it was on the ABC last year, and it was about, um, it was an unfortunate documentary. It was about teenage suicide. But there was one particular girl's mother talking about the fact that her friends kept sending text messages to the girl who died, to her phone, and they kept writing on her Facebook page and they kept – and it was it, it was very distressing for the mother. Yeah. The actual documentary was called There's No 3G in Heaven. Mm. And that's what she ended up putting – you know, she in, in the end she had to say to them, you've got to stop doing this. You know, you're not helping yourselves or anyone else with this. But she couldn't get into the girl's Facebook oh. pages and things to close them down because she didn't know. I think you can actually apply to Facebook and stuff like that, but it's a long and involved process. Yep. Um, she didn't know the passwords and all that sort of stuff. And obviously a lot of parents don't really even know what their teens are doing online. Mm. So it would be hard to know how to do that. But it was – she found it very, very distressing that they kept texting and they kept, you know, doing all this kind of stuff. And um, I guess it's it's something going forward that we're all going to have to think about, perhaps. Yeah, definitely. Mm. Well, speaking uh, about teenagers, um, I came across an interesting link this week about um, Corey Dr. Rowe's novel being pulled from school reading after, you know, they decided that it was questioning authority. So it says here that Little Brother, that's the name of the book, Corey Dr. Rowe's novel about teenagers rebelling against the surveillance state has been pulled from a school reading program in Florida this summer following what the author said were concerns from the school's principal over its questioning of authority and its (laughs) lauding of hacker culture. Wow. So, 
that I mean that raises all sorts of questions about censorship and and it's just reminiscent of Footloose. Remember that? <laughs> oh no, there's no dancing. <laughs> That's right. What would yes, David exactly do? Like Footloose. So, so, what are your thoughts on that? Do you think that this is um, acceptable? Do you think that we should be censoring what our kids read? What? Uh, look, I think that uh, there's there's been a little bit of this lately, you know, in the news because I think that um, I believe in the UK they started pulling American authors out of the school program and um, there's been a whole lot of all of a sudden everybody's taking great interest in what everybody else is reading, mm-hmm. um, which is, you know, I guess there has to be some guidance, I suppose. But I, I do believe that pulling, I think that reading is one of the few really interesting and um, individual pursuits that a person can do. And I think that um, I don't believe we should censor what kids read. I think kids self-censor. They'll either read it and like it or they won't. Do you know what I mean? And mm. just because they read it in a book doesn't necessarily – it's a bit like video games. Are we going to – like everyone keeps talking about video games, you know, inciting riots, but nobody's actually like banning them or doing anything about that. Like why mm. – ideas are dangerous, I agree, but I also believe that, you know, if we stop kids from thinking – then we're in an absolute mess. Um, so no, I don't believe that we should censor them. I think, you know, I, I think you would put most of those things into a school reading program. Ninety-eight percent of the class won't read it anyway, as we all know. Mm. You know, half the stuff we got set at school, nobody read. We just <laughs> read the short notes and wrote the wrote the essay. Um, but I just, I, I you think you bring more attention to it by banning it than you do by anything else. Yeah, personally, you make Absolutely. it you make it more attractive if you ban it. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, I don't believe in censorship either, but I must admit that I guess because I don't have children, I don't really think about, you know, these issues because it's not a decision I need to make. Having said that, I I oddly, you know, because I, I sometimes browse through picture books because, you know, we have a course called mm. um, Writing Picture Books and I love, you know, watching the – I mean, I love having a look at the words and the images working together. I think sometimes it's pretty magical. But I actually am – surprised sometimes at the number of picture books I do read that uh, that I think, oh my God, I wouldn't let my kid if I had one read that. Really? Yeah, I'm really surprised at that because it About leaves what? oh it leaves me with a like picture books can be really powerful. Yeah. And um it it leaves me with a sense of sadness and despair in some cases um that I think, God, imagine if I was five years old and and I read that and I know that's an unusual thing to think and some of these picture books are very popular but I'm just being honest with my reaction yeah wow okay hmm. I think you should make me a list of those picture books so I, I will look at them I will um okay so let's move on to our um to discussion about books and um I've got an interesting link for uh, our listeners this week because I received an email from Seth Godin. See the name that I just dropped there? I love that. You received an email from Seth. I hope you printed it out and like stuck it to the wall. Well, and it was actually because um, Seth Godin was very kind to provide me with the um, front cover blurb on my book. And he said some very nice things um, about my book, um, which uh, are like besties. Yeah, you know, which are featured on the front, on, on the cover. So he had emailed talking about his new initiative, and it's called Hug Duck. Dot com, And it's really interesting because, as we know, there are all sorts of review sites in the world because people do trust reviews and people do look for reviews sometimes, whether you're buying a gadget or a book mm. or a DVD or whatever. People ask their friends for reviews. So this is a review site and it's um, one where you can review a whole variety of things. I'm only bothering to review books at this stage. And what happens is you can talk about you know, the, the your book, you can share your review. If people then read it and then subsequently buy, what happens is there's an affiliate program with Amazon or whoever um, associated with that, but the money, instead of going to Seth Godin, it all goes to charity. 
Okay. So if you if you actually purchase as a result of the review, there's a you know flow on benefit from you know there's a variety of charities that um, this site supports, or there's a, and you, as the reviewer you can choose which charity you want your money to go to. Oh right, that's interesting. Yeah. So I thought it was clever because you know it's something that's being done you know uh, really for the for the social good. Um, yeah. So but you've been invited to submit reviews to that. So the so as a review site, it's for um, invited reviewers. No, you, anyone can. So it's anyone in beta can. at the moment because um, you know they're obviously going to see if there are any issues or they're going to iron out any problems. Um, but you can you know you can start a review. I mean, you can start your own review site. So yeah, check it out at hugdug.com hmm. and you can um, start reviewing your own books. And if people and and sharing those reviews, and if people subsequently buy, it goes to charity. Wow. Hmm. Okay, that's really interesting. On yourself. Yes, on your Seth. So what's happening in the world of blogs this week? Well, I thought I would bring to our readers' attention, there's an Australian author, Natasha Lester, and she's got a great new website. It's only just sort of, she's sort of redesigned and put it all together in the last um, month or so. But her blog is particularly good for people who want to be writers Mm. because she's extremely generous with her with what she's learned and who she talks to. She has a little book club that she runs. Um, she, her latest post is about writing a first draft of a novel, what it's really like. Mm. And it's got a very clever little infograph with it. And um, it is very much it, true, to, true to life. Like I've seen a lot of writers comment on it online and it's sort of like this business of where, you know, stage two where you're groping in the dark, you know, there's a story somewhere but you can't quite find it and mm. then stage four you get the fireworks of it's all happening and you're writing and it's wonderful and then page five, uh, stage five you get slammed by the doubt, oh, which yeah. is the doubt. Oh, the doubt is killing. <laughs> um, and so it's a great it's a great little post. It's a really, you know, funny um, but it's very true little little post about writing a first draft. But I do think it's worth having a look at the um, at the whole blog. She has it all divided up to make things easy to find. So if you're starting out, she's got start writing your book now. She's got secrets for getting published. She also is a mad Scrivener fan. Ah, uh, yes. A little bit like somebody else I know, <laughs> which would be you. Um, and she she has a lot of tips there on writing with Scrivener and stuff like that. So if you're interested in having a look at that, it's worth, worth having a look. And, of course, Natasha um, teaches our creative writing course in Perth um so she's one of our fabulous team as well yes so which just makes us love her even more but um yeah it's very it's a great great website I will put the link to that particular uh, post on writing your first draft into the show notes but I think it's definitely worth having a look through her whole site and just having a look at what she's doing so do you agree with those stages yes eight stages is that what you feel you went through as well it's what I go through every time, I believe. <laughs> it just doesn't matter. I think you start the first draft of a novel and you that's exactly, you know, what happens. You have that sort of like you're, you're sort of feeling your way through and then you get this sort of, oh, yes, that's what it's going to be and off you go and you're writing like a demon and yeah. it doesn't um, – the, the doubt will hit you. Uh, I think I, I would actually say stage five comes, you know, back and back. So and just back. to clarify for people, stage one is finding a voice, stage two, groping in the dark, stage three, the surprise, stage four, the fireworks, stage five, that doubt, stage six, a glimpse of the end, and then stage seven, fantastic, typing the end, but then stage eight, now I have to redraft. Yes. And I think it's I think it's really once you realise that there is a stage eight mm. that you're really on your way as an author, mm. because I think if you type the end and think I'm done, no, y- no. Um, <laughs> unfortunately, no. I remember the first time I ever finished a manuscript. I, I honestly thought that that was it. <laughs> I thought I was finished. I thought it was just genius work of genius, and that that was all I was ever going to have to do. Um, but yeah, no, I. I've learned the long and hard way that that is not the case. Um, so I think the quicker that you get to the now I have to redraft stage, the better. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So moving on then, who is our writer in residence this week, Al? Well, speaking of redrafting, <laughs> our writer in residence this week is actually um, an editor and she is a fiction editor of some repute in Australian circles. She's, I've worked, um, it's Nicola O'Shea is her name, and I've worked with Nicola in the past, and she's incredibly thorough and very, very fair, which I think is 
pretty much what you want in a fiction editor. Um, but she has a new venture that she's going to talk talk about in the interview. Um, she's doing some work. Um, she's mostly worked with um, traditional publishers in the past. She's always in demand mm. as a freelance editor. But she's now offering her services via a new program called um, ebookedit.com.au and so we had a little bit of a talk about that and we had a little bit of a talk about the process of editing and she has given us a lot of insight into how it works and so if you are a um, you know a first-time writer or you're sort of coming along the way this is really worth listening to because the editing process is a world unto itself so here's Nicola Nicola O'Shea is a freelance book editor who works mostly on fiction and some memoir as well. She's been working in publishing since the early 90s, including six years in-house at HarperCollins, and has been a freelance book editor for about 10 years. So welcome to our podcast, Nicola. Thank you. All right, so you've worked across pretty much every major Australian publishing house. Who have been some of your favourite authors that you've worked with? Um, well, uh, most of the authors I work with I really enjoy working with, but um, I guess Belinda Alexander is an author I really love working with. Um, she writes these great big sweeping historical sagas and um, you know, her manuscripts are always really wide-ranging and always really professionally presented, so um, I usually find that when they come in I end up reading the story. Um, and just racing through it first, just for absolute pleasure. Um, and then I have to go back and, you know, um, have a look at it afterwards in more detail and start to analyse the text and look at how it sits together. Um, Catherine Howe is another writer that I really like um, for the same reason, really polished manuscripts, and um, I just love the stories. So she writes a kind of paramedic-based crime fiction, <laughs> which sounds um, quite specific. Um, but she's just a great writer. And again, I, I race through the manuscript and then have to go back and, you know, start working rather than just reading. Um, there's another writer called Margaret Innes who used to write thrillers under the name Alex Palmer. Right. Um, and she's writing more general fiction now. And I have a really good working relationship with her. So um, she usually sends me an early draft okay. um, of a manuscript that she's working on and... Um, I read it and emailed her some thoughts. And then we have these fantastic phone conversations where, um, you know, we just talk through the characters and the themes and, <coughs> excuse me, what she's wanting to do with the story. Um, and often go off on all kinds of tangents um, and enter into all kinds of interesting territory. And somehow those conversations end up with Mark finding um, a way to approach the next draft, something that might take it in quite a different direction from what I've just read, but still fits with... Um, with what she's wanting to do with the book um, in an organic way. And I find that a really exciting process because, um, you know, it's so much fun for me because I get to throw around all those ideas with Marg and, you know, get involved in the creative side of the editing process. But then, you know, it's Marg who goes off and does all the work afterwards, does all the hard work, and I you know, <laughs> just get to go off and have a cup of tea and think about how much fun that was. <laughs> so that's that's quite a collaborative approach. So some, some um, authors obviously work very, very closely with an editor right from the beginning of the of the process, um, is that just to get a different perspective or to, like, what, what, why does Marg do that, do you think? Is it a, you know, like, is yeah, it... I think it's a sounding board. I think she, because yeah. um, she doesn't, she doesn't, her husband doesn't read her work um, until it's published. Um, so, and we, because I think, well, we built up a good rapport um, when we were working. Um, I, I used to work on her books when I was at HarperCollins and then right. freelance after that. Yeah. And so we just built up a really good rapport and I, I guess... Um, I guess you just build trust. So, um, you know, she, well, she trusts that I'm going to give her useful feedback, but I also trust that she is going to take that feedback, yes. you know? Because yes. it's always quite scary when you send off your thoughts. Um, you know, if, something, if something's not working, it's always a bit scary to just send off those thoughts to tell the author that, and you, you kind of wait thinking, oh, God, you know, how are they going to respond? And so it's really, really exciting to, to have someone like Mark who, who just kind of absorbs it and goes, let's find a new way to make this happen. You know, it's yep. really fantastic. And there are a few other authors I work with like that as well that really like to, I think it depends on the author, it depends on their process. So some authors really like to work collaboratively like that and bounce ideas off each other. I mean, they're still doing work. Yes. Um, you know, like they're the ones who actually make the words come out on the page. It's just, they just have a chance to talk it over and, and to, to kind of open it up, I suppose, like break open the manuscript in a way. Um, but then there's other authors, you know, that just send me the manuscript 
I write my letter or my notes and I send it back. And and I always have the option for for a follow up phone conversation. Yeah. And a lot of authors don't don't necessarily want that. Yeah, you know, they're yeah. quite happy to just work from the the written notes. Yeah. So so it depends on the author. I, I try and work with whatever the author wants to do. You know. Okay. So as a freelance editor, you also work with unpublished authors um, to get their manuscripts ready for submission. Um, So what are some of the things that you're seeing in those manuscripts over and over that need to be ironed out before the novel is ready to to even submit? Yeah. So, well, there's a few, um, there are a few recurring issues. So point of view um, is sometimes problematic. So you can, you know, once you're about, I don't know, 50 or so pages into manuscript, you can really tell whether the author's got control over the point of view framework. So um, so they, they understand, they know which characters are telling the story and which characters are carry, carrying the story and, and taking the reader with them. Um, so head hopping is one of those things that um, okay, I always so try and get off the fix. So head hopping is where the point of view will change within a scene from one character yes. to another, right? Yep. Okay. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And, and often to um, insignificant characters. So the scene might be from the perspective of a main character, and then suddenly it'll the author will jump into you know like the waitress's head if the if the main <laughs> characters are in the restaurant you know having dinner. Yep. Um, and it just it just creates this jarring effect and. You know, a lot of readers might not actually be able to say what it is that's causing them to feel confused, but that's often what it is because, you know, as a reader, you're trusting the author to to have control over that kind of stuff, over yeah. the dynamics of, of telling the story. So um, so head hopping is, is, is quite a common one. Yeah. Um, sometimes manuscripts are just too long. So, right. you know, sometimes I get authors emailing me and they've got, you know, they'll say, oh, my manuscript's 250,000 words. And I just think... Why? <laughs> you know, so um, really, I, I think, you know, 130,000 words is probably where you want to start thinking about, you know, how can you, you know, look at cutting it back. Um, so sometimes there might be too many plot lines. Okay. The author's just got too much going on in the manuscript, in the one manuscript. So there might actually be three books, you know, packed into the one manuscript. Um, or if it's historical, they'll, they'll have really long descriptions about the clothes or the food or, or the historical backdrop, yeah. which which really clogs up the storytelling. Yeah. Um, yeah, and telling. Telling is another really common problem. So okay. where the author's telling the reader what the characters are thinking and feeling rather than letting that come through on the page. So often I find myself um, picking out key scenes and saying, yeah, can you dramatise this scene? Um, so, so it's really useful, um, I think. <laughs> I hope it's useful. I have this analogy of saying to the author, imagine that your characters are up on a stage, but instead of moving around and talking, you're standing there reading, yep. you know, reading the descriptions to the audience, uh, and the audience is looking at you as you tell them everything, and the characters are just standing there doing absolutely nothing. So you want those characters to come alive, um, to start moving around on the page. So, you know, turning the telling into showing, which is, you know, a bit of a cliche phrase, but... Um, but it's really important. It's really important for how you tell a story. And is that something like? Do you think with well, like particularly with sort of newer authors who are who are maybe you know have just completed their first manuscript or something, is having those conversations and and learning how to take that editing notes and actually apply them. Is that mm-hmm. a skill that needs to be learned as well? Is that something that, that authors learn as they go, do you find? Are, are some people very, very good at being edited and some people not? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, word. and it's really interesting when you work on um, a series. So, you, you know, you, you work on book one and, and you give lots of feedback and then you get book two's manuscript however many months later and you can really see whether the author has applied the things that you worked on in book one into book two, or are you going through the same things again and again? And some, some authors do that really well. Um, and, and it's really, that's quite exciting as an editor because you go, oh, that's so great. Like, you know, and the manuscripts get better and better each time yeah. um, they send them in. But then there are other authors who just never seem to get it. And, and I don't know why that is. I don't know if it's because they're not very good at, um, I guess some people are good at reading instructions and then applying them. Yep. you know, in a practical sense, and some people just are hopeless at that. So maybe that's a similar kind of process. Um, or maybe they just can't see the things in their own work. I mean, some people are good at analysing other people's work, but they're not necessarily good at being able to see those problems in their own manuscript. Yeah. Um, and sometimes, I think, 
I shouldn't really say this, I said, but sometimes I think people are just a bit lazy. Um, you know, if they get used to being edited and they get used to the editor really helping them to turn the manuscript into something better, you know, I guess if you're really busy and you're writing a lot of books and you don't have a lot of time, it might be quite tempting to just go, oh, well, you know what? And in fact, I've heard authors say that, you know, my, my editor will fix that. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, but, but ideally, of course, you know, it's always nicer to work with people who, who do learn and do apply things because then if the manuscript's getting better in a crafted way, it means they can do more exciting things um, above that, if you know what I mean. You know, they can bend the rules or they can uh, break them or do new and interesting things, whereas if you're still doing the fundamentals of just getting the story to work, there isn't really... You don't have as much of a launching pad, I suppose, for new stuff. I always find that phrase, my editor will fix that, to be quite funny because in my experience, the editor picks up the problem and then the author has to fix it. So I well, just, well, yes, <laughs> if, I do. if you kind of try and fix it in the first place. <laughs> yeah, I guess, I guess it depends on the type of problem. So sometimes it might be something that, um, I guess those things come up more when you're editing for publishers. So the publisher might want a particular type of book and oh, maybe yes. the author hasn't written that type of book. So a lot of the editing process might be about, you know, helping the author to turn what they've written into something different. So can you tell immediately if you have a book in your hands that publishers are going to want, if you're looking at perhaps, you know, a, a new author's manuscript, getting oh, ready for submission? I could. Oh! <laughs> I'd be some kind of super agent if I could do that. <laughs> yes, I wish you could too. Um, I, can tell, I can tell if a manuscript has a really strong voice and I can tell if it's working really well and all the elements are in place. But unfortunately, that's not always enough to get a book published. So, um, you know, there are all kinds of reasons why a book might be appealing to a publishing company. So it might be more to do with the author, whether they're easily marketable than it is to do with the author's writing skills. Yeah. Or the publisher might be looking for books in a particular genre and this particular manuscript just doesn't fit in with what they want at the moment. Yeah. Um, and I think to... Uh, well, I think most people who work in publishing or, or certainly in editorial would say they've noticed that in the last 10 to 15 years there's been a real shift towards um, less risk. You know, so publishers aren't as willing to take a risk on something that doesn't easily fit into a category or might be a bit out there in terms of the content or, um, or is, or is um, difficult. You know, it's not an easy read, yeah. um, so it's going to challenge readers, and, and they're just not as prepared to take those risks. Um, so uh, those kinds of books often end up with the smaller um, independent presses that are prepared to, you know, take those risks because they, they don't have to, you know, publish as many books as a large publishing company does. Because, you know, the large houses, they usually have a, a cut-off point um, for um, print runs. So if they don't think a book is going to sell I don't know, 10,000, I'm just pulling this number out of my head, but 10,000 copies, they won't do it because right. it doesn't work out to be commercially viable for them. Whereas a smaller press might not have, might have much lower, um, you know, print run yeah. um, you know, um, capacity, or not capacity, they're, they're willing to go with a smaller print run and invest more in marketing and promoting the book. Or they want to have a list that does different kinds of fiction you know, or different kinds of memo. They, they might be wanting to build a list that does challenge readers rather than something that's very mainstream and very commercial. Um, so, so yeah, I think, I mean, that's a really hard thing. You know, when authors send me their manuscript and, and they say, I want to submit it to a publisher and do you think it's good enough to be published? It's really hard for me to answer that question. So all I can do really is help them get it to a publishable standard. But then it's really luck whether it gets picked up or not. Um, you know, and some manuscripts do. Like I've had quite a few authors who've gone on to get published, but then there are others whose work I think is really great, and and you know they just haven't been picked up, um, which is why um, eBooks is you know there's a new avenue now for authors who don't end up getting traditionally published, uh, and I think that's I certainly find that much more um, it, it's much easier to. Um, talk to authors about their work. If, it, if, it doesn't, if, if they're not a failure, I suppose, it's not like there's only one path now and if you don't get picked up by a publisher, you're a failure. That, that's not true. You can go on and be very successful by self-publishing. Um, so, you know, that, that's, that's really opened that up for me. It makes me feel um, more able to be encouraging, you know. Which is great and which brings us neatly to our next, the next part of our interview because, as you say, self-publishing or indie publishing is, is very much an avenue for people now and um, I think that one thing that has come out of the last couple of years of people's experiences with 
um, with e-publishing and uh, indie publishing is that the realisation that just because you self-publish doesn't mean that you don't need an editor. And um, so we're seeing a lot more sort of people talking about the importance of that. And you're part of a new endeavour called eBooked It. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so um, eBook Edit is a service for authors who want to Sorry, I thought it was eBooked It. <laughs> oh, no, sorry, eBook Edit. E-book yeah, edit um, it's all one word, sense. so yeah, yeah, I yeah. it depends how you read it, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so they, the author sends their manuscript and we can edit it for them and then convert the Word document to EPUB and Mobi files, which they can um, either upload to e-tailers like Amazon and Smashwords or they can sell through their own website. Um, so we've tried to make it as flexible as possible, so it's up to the authors which services they want to choose. So, um, for example, they might have a structural edit only and then go straight to the file conversions, or they might have a structural edit and a copy edit mm-hmm. and then use someone else for file conversions, or they might come to us just for the file conversions and they've already had the manuscript edited somewhere else, or they've chosen not to have it edited at all. Yeah. Um, so so the, the idea is that the author gets flexibility but but the main thing for us is that the author retains complete ownership of the text um and control over how they sell the book so um so so ebook edit isn't a publisher um it's it's a it's a facilitator i suppose an assistance Um, program (laughs) pardon an assistance program yeah an assistance program exactly um and i just i just feel really strongly that that idea of the author having control um when it comes to um self-publishing so that there are companies that provide self-publishing services to authors so they'll give you the isbn they'll upload the files for you they'll organize the design um and they'll do some marketing as well but which is great if you don't want to take control of all of those things yourself. But if you, they they set the price, um, so it means that you don't have control over pricing strategies. Um, they also charge you if you want to um, use books for promotional copies. So if you want to sell, you know, send books to reviewers, or you go to an event and you want to have books there to sell. Um, to readers, you have to pay for those books. So it's a little bit like the arrangement with a traditional publisher. Um, so we, we didn't really want to get involved in that kind of thing. We just wanted to um, help the author make a product, make a good, high-quality product, and then hand everything over to them at the end of the production process, and then they get to make all the decisions about how much the book's going to cost, changing the pricing if they want to, working out the promotion strategies, where they're going to sell it, um, what they're going to give away for free, all of that kind of stuff. Um, so, so, yeah, so I guess it's a little bit different in that respect. Okay, so given that, like, I mean, you know, people have talked about the benefits of indie authors working with professional editors. Um, if if someone does come to you for a structural edit or perhaps a copy edit, would you tell that author, like, as a professional editor, if you didn't feel their work was ready for publication? Yes, absolutely. I think that's so important. And, and it works both ways. So, obviously, if an author submitted to a traditional publisher, uh, I'll, you know, tell them it's not ready because yeah. you only really get one chance for that kind of thing. But it, it's just as important for indie authors, I think. And, um, I mean, if you're, if you value the editing process anyway, it's not really to your benefit to, for someone to just tell you your work's fantastic when it isn't. Like, you're, you're paying that person to read your manuscript anyway and give you professional feedback. So, yeah. it's really important that what they're giving you is true feedback and honest feedback. Um, I mean, it has to be given in a constructive way. You know, I would never, yeah. sometimes people send me their manuscript and they say, just tell me if I'm wasting my time, you know. And I just think there's no way I'm ever going to say that to you because nobody ever wastes their time with writing. You know, yeah. you always get something out of the process, even if the manuscript doesn't get published. So, um, so yeah, it, it's, you know, the author doesn't have to take my advice. Um, you know, like I, I give my advice um, and then it's up to them whether they want to actually implement those changes or not. Um, and if they don't, then that's fine. It's their book, it's their decision. Um, I guess the only thing I would find then if... if um, if I've done a structural edit with someone and they haven't changed anything at all and then they want me to do a copy edit, I think I'd find that quite hard because all of the problems <laughs> would, still, would be still be in the manuscript and I wouldn't really be able to do a very good job on the copy edit yeah. if, you know, if, if the big problems haven't been fixed. So in that case, I'd probably recommend they don't have a copy edit at all and just go straight to file conversion or maybe it'd be better for them to work with another editor who doesn't feel the same way about the manuscript as I do because, because it's that, I don't know, you want to do a good job, you know, you want to do the best job you can for an author and 
if they if they don't want to do that as well, then um, it's probably not going to make for a great working relationship. But that has actually never happened so far. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Okay. So um, you know, you know, it, it is it is always quite amazing to me that people. Um, ask for feedback on a manuscript, I might often be telling them that they need to go away and rewrite it completely and they will happily do that um, and, and pay me, you know, for that advice and then come back and ask me to read the, the revised draft and then want to work with me again on the copy edit. So so I guess I must be doing something right if people keep coming back. Um, but I think that it, it's a question of integrity, isn't it? I mean, I, you know, I can't, I can't do my job properly if I'm not able to be truthful about what I think about a work and that, and that's an objective opinion it's not you know based on years of experience of reading and editing it's not as if I'm just reading it subjectively and saying oh I don't like that because I don't like I don't know people who eat fish or something yeah, you know yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah so how many clients do you work with each year on average um well I had to um I had to think about that so probably between 50 and 60 okay. um but some of those might be repeat clients. So as I said, you know, I'll yeah. do a structural edit and the author might send the manuscript back to me to read the revised draft. Um, and then some of those clients are publishers as well. So, so the client is a publisher, even though I might work with several different authors yeah. within, within that them. one yeah, client group, sort of. Yeah, so, um, and it's also a mix of structural editing and copy editing. So um, okay. I probably, probably, they'd probably be about 65% structural and 35% copy editing at the okay. moment. Yeah. All right, and what sort of costs are people looking at if they want to work with um, ebook edit? Um, well, one of the things that was really important to me was to put our costs up on the website. So um, I really hate it when you go and have a look at a website and they don't tell you how much anything costs and you yeah. have to email to get yeah. a quote or something. It just, I just hate it and I won't do it. I won't go with that company. So, And I had a look around, you know, when I was thinking of setting up ebook edit and, and quite a lot of people don't. Offer, don't tell you what the rates are. So that, that was important to me. So I put the rates up. So it's some $70 an hour for structural editing mm-hmm. and $65 an hour for copy editing. Um, so obviously the higher the word count, the longer the manuscript, the longer it takes to read. So for a structural edit, um, we've kind of put together some maximum fee guidelines. So for a manuscript up to 80,000 words, there's a maximum fee of $1,200 for a structural edit. Yep. Um, but that maximum fee is the absolute most an author's going to pay. So um, I keep a timesheet when I'm editing and um, I only charge for time spent. So even though we've said the maximum fee is 1200 it might actually come in at 750 okay. um, depending right. on how much work's required. Um, copy editing takes a lot longer because it's much more intensive work. Yeah. Um, and so, so that costs more. Um, so I've got a couple of examples. Um, again, I've got estimates up on the website, yeah. um, but I I always um, edit a sample chapter when I'm putting together a quote for an author for a copy edit. So yeah. that gives me much better idea of what the author's writing's like, the kinds of things that are going to come up in the edit. So I can I can make that quote um, much closer, um, you know, to what it's really going to how, how long it's really going to take me to do the copy edit. Um, so recently I did a copy edit on a 90,000 word novel that took me 28 hours. So that okay. cost the author um, $1,820. Yep. Um, and I did another one that was 95,000 words and that took me 52 hours. So that was a lot longer even though it was only 5,000 words more. Yep. Um, but I'd actually quoted the author for 42 hours so that's what I charged her. So that came in at um, 2730. Right. Um, I know it's a lot of money. So I'm really conscious of trying to keep the cost down. Um, I'm also conscious that my rates are probably higher than a lot of other copy editors out there, but I've got a lot of experience and the way I work with an author is um, I really try and leave as much decision-making as possible in the hands of the author. So when I do a copy edit, I I tend to ask lots of questions and suggest things that could be cut or suggest changes and leave it up to the author to make the final decision. So I don't just go in there and just, you know, rewrite the text or, the or you know. Exactly, yeah. Well, I edit on screen, so, so it's not, you know. But, yeah, it, it's exactly that idea. I don't just go in and impose my own um, preferences on the yeah. text. But, but when you edit that way, it does take longer. So if I did do it, you know, just the slash and burn kind of edit, it probably would be cheaper for the author. But 
they might feel bruised yes, <laughs> by the would, end of the process. They would feel yeah. bruised, trust me. Yeah. So yeah, and and also, I mean, so I guess that's why it's important for us to be flexible. So somebody might say, well, I'll have a strategy with you, but um, I'd rather use a cheaper copy editor. And you know, I'm really happy to recommend um, other copy other editors. People. Yeah, yeah. So long as they're, I I just think the main thing is that they're experienced and they're experienced in the genre that that author's working in. Um, And I know there are people who charge less per hour than I do, um, and that's fine, you know, if an author wants to um, work with them, I'm I'm really happy to do that. I just think the important thing for me is that the author's getting value for money, and um, if they feel, you know, they would get that with a two credits, then then that's that's fine. Um, Sorry. Sorry, I was just going to say the file conversions are flat fee, um, so they're tiered according to word count. So for a manuscript of 80,000 words, it's $149 to convert to EPUB and Mobi files, yep. um, and then it goes up to 199 for manuscripts up to 150,000 words. Okay, um, and we'll put those, yeah. we'll put the website um, in the show notes that, you know, outlines all of that stuff as well so that people yeah, can okay. get an idea. Because yeah, yeah. as you say, I think that there's a lot of, there's not a lot of hard information about costs and things out there, and so people will be maybe looking at, at um, indie publishing and have no idea exactly how much it's going to cost them to, to do a professional job like that. So I'll yeah, put those in the does, show notes. And the costs do add up, you know. There's no getting away from that. They do, but I suppose the advantage is, is that you get a higher percentage of the sale price, yeah. um, you know, when you actually sell the book. So, um, you know, when you traditionally published, the standard is 10%. Yeah. Um, yeah. All right. So, well, that brings us to my next point because as a person who's been in the industry for a long time, you have seen people, um, you've seen the changes in, I guess, the expectation on the author to sell their own product. Would you agree with that, that there's more expectation that an author will Uh, help? Yeah, very much so, yeah. Um, I went to a session at the Sydney Writers Festival, which was on on that, um, on, you know, how authors are expected to promote their own work so much more these days than than they were, um, well, just, you know, four or five years ago. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you know, I think you're expected to have an author platform, so whether that's an you know, online presence, so whether that's a website or a blog or you're on Twitter or Pinterest, um, you know, you're expected to be really active and to be out there um, so that when readers come across your book, they can Google you and find out, you know, more information about you and other books you've published or just, you know, your, your personal history. Um, and and that, that's the onus is, is on authors to do that, definitely, um, even when they're um, being traditionally published. Um, you know, the more successful the author, the more a publishing company is going to invest in marketing and promoting their book. Um, yeah. But for most authors, the marketing spend is pretty small. Um, and actually, I was listening to your um, conversation with um, John Purcell. Yes. Yeah, from Booktopia, and he was talking about how, you know, the, the, um, the way he sees how the books are promoted from the other side as yes. a bookseller. Yeah, and, and I think a lot of first-time authors in particular are often disappointed by how their book is marketed. Yeah. Um, you know, it can really disappear. There are so many new titles coming out each month. Their book, it's really easy to just disappear in that and, and you know so so when when they take on that process themselves so if they become um if they choose to self-publish i mean it's a lot of work i think i think that's what authors who've been traditionally published realize if they do do their own book um they realize how much work actually goes on behind the scenes um you know just um just ring people up and contacting people online or whatever um it is hard work, um, and it can be daunting when you don't know anything about how the industry works or who to approach, but there is a lot of information for indie authors out there already. Um, you know, there's there's lots of fantastic websites um, and articles on independent publishing, um, and we have a resources page on ebook edits website, which has a long list of links um, to articles on different topics, like, you know, design and marketing and selling and um, how to promote your book, running competitions, doing blog tours, um, you know, you can do digital signings, things like that. So there are lots of things you can do, but, you know, you do have to be prepared as an indie author to actually do that research and then get out there and do the hard work yourself. So would that um, be your like, first tip for authors who want to self-publish? Like you need to do the research and you need to be prepared to do that work? Yeah, I think you need. you definitely need to do the research before you even, you know, engage an editor or, or look at, getting someone to do file conversion, you need to understand what's involved in the process and you need to understand how the e-tailers work. Um, 
and where you can sell your book, you know, the different options for selling your book uh, and, you know, how to produce it, how to get your cover done, um, print-on-demand options. There's a lot. There's a lot to think about. And I think it's, I think it's a certain kind of person who makes a successful indie author, you know, somebody who um, really believes in what they're selling and what they're writing but also has the confidence to go out and do that kind of thing and the energy, I suppose. <laughs> Yes, you know, and the time. Um, yeah, well, yeah, it, it is a full-time job. I mean, it's a full-time job being a writer anyway, even if you're not writing full-time. Um, you know, when you publish with a traditional publisher, you're expected to put in a lot of work in a quite short time frame often um, without any kind of reference to the fact that you might have a full-time job doing something completely different or you, you've got a family or whatever, you know. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, I, I think any type of publishing it does involve a lot of um, energy and time. Um, but, yeah, I guess as an indie author, you know, you really need to, to go that extra mile, I suppose. Yeah. Fantastic. All right, Nicola, well, thank you so much for your time today, speaking of time. Um, it's been uh, really, really interesting, and you've given us a whole lot of food for thought there. So thanks very much. And um, I will put, of course, all the links to websites. I'll also link to the John Purcell podcast interview that we were discussing um i'll yeah. link you through to that one as well because that was for me that was quite an eye-opening discussion yeah, that was really interesting. from yeah. the bookseller perspective so i think everyone should have a listen to that but thanks again nicola it was really really great to talk to you oh my pleasure and thanks very much great interview with nicola yeah, fantastic. I mean, as I said, she has got so much insight and we had a very long and involved conversation afterwards about what it feels like as an editor to be edited. And um, I'm actually going to answer some questions on that for her, for her website. So keep an eye out for that because being yeah. edited is a whole new experience for an author and it's a really, it can be quite confronting. So we're going to talk about that. But anyway, in the meantime, it ties in very, very neatly with this week's working writer's tip um, because I received an email via, or actually a little message, via Facebook from Nikki Fisher, who's part of my fibre community. And her email, her message was this, I am nearing completion of my first ebook, and in true writer fashion, I am procrastinating by thinking about who I should get to proofread and edit it when I finish. Wondering if you have any tips on finding the right person for the job, where to look and questions to ask to make sure they are the right person. So, um... I responded to Nikki saying, boy, do I have an interview for you, which, of course, is the one that I've just done with Nicola. Mm. Um, but I also suggested that she contact the Freelance Editors Network, um, which Kylie Mason spoke about in an epi a previous episode of uh, So You Want to Be a Writer. Um, so we'll put the show note in the show notes, I'll put the link to that Freelance Editors Network because it gives you an idea of what to um where to look. Mm. Um, but I would also like to point out that often the best way to find the right person for the job is via word of mouth. Um, so when I did my ebook Get Paid to Write, um, I found my copy editor, Jem Bates, via word of mouth. And I also found my proofreader, Mal McClenahan, also via word of mouth. So asking around of anybody you know that's sort of done that, um, done anything like that before is always a great way to find good people. Yeah. Um, what would you suggest? Do you suggest ways to, um, yeah, I, to I, find them? Yeah, I agree with all of the above. The other way um, which can be useful is when you're looking, you know, and if you're based in Australia or in whatever country, um, you look at books that you'd like and or that are similar in vain to the kind of books that the book that you're writing mm -hmm. and they will often thank the editor yes. at the front. Yes. And it's not hard these days to Google and find the editor and often these days they are freelance editors. I mean, sometimes they're in-house and if so, oh, well, you, f you figure that out, that out and they probably yep. can't edit your – don't have the time to edit your, your book but um, they're often freelance. So yep. that is also another good way. But I think it's also important to mention – that um, sometimes people ignore the fact that it can be useful to get a structural edit yes. as opposed to just going straight to the copy edit, and yes. copy edit and proofread. I think that there are two kinds of um, edits that it needs to go through or almost
verse 3. Um, but the first one actually needs to be um, needs to have nothing to do with the commas and the spelling and the whatever. I mean, they might pick those things up, but that's not the main aim. The, the first one needs to be somebody actually looking at it from a structural point of view. And that applies whether it's fiction or nonfiction. Right. So if it's nonfiction, it needs to be in the right order. It needs to make sense. It needs to, you know, still yeah. flow. And with fiction, obviously the whole plot and pacing and all the rest of it, that the, the structural editor can give that feedback before you even consider doing a copy edit and a proofread. Yeah. And I think the other thing to consider is, you know, when we're talking about questions to ask, and um, this did come up in the interview with Nicola, but you need to talk about costs up front and you need to consider mm. the fact that sometimes the cheapest option is not always the best option when it comes to editing. Oh, you yeah. do tend to get what you pay for. And there are a lot of people out there that will, you know, throw up a shingle that says they're an editor. Oh, yeah. um, but, you know have a look at the experience that that person's had, look at the kinds of work that they've done before, have they ever dealt with anything like what you're offering them and just make sure that, you know, you get the right person for the job. Like if you put this much work into a manuscript, you want to make sure that the edit is going to be worthy of the amount of work that you've put in. Absolutely. You get what you pay for. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so our web pick for this week is a plagiarism checker. <laughs> and that <it's>, sounds exciting. <laughs> it's plagiarismchecker.com. But um, to be honest, I'm, you know, you can do the same thing with Google. <laughs> Yes. But I think it's worthwhile sometimes um, to check some of the things that you write, um, whether that's your blog posts or articles or whatever. Every so often, if I'm, you know, feeling a bit bored, I will actually take some chunks of my writing and I will put them into Google and see where they appear. And hopefully they only appear on my sites or whoever it is that I've written it for. But I have on occasion actually discovered. Um, my stuff being plagiarized so oh. yeah so it, it's it's certainly an eye-opening experience when that occurs and it you know gives it it you know um it's worthwhile to google not so much yourself but your words to see if they appear elsewhere so and how do you decide which chunks of text you're going to check Val? um often like what makes just... you think <laughs> i'm just going to check this one today um, sometimes I'll do it randomly, but usually I will do the um, f- first one or two paragraphs. Mm. Uh, and um, which, you know, begs the question, have you been plagiarised? Have you discovered any plagiarism of your work? I, when I used to write, um, I wrote money articles for 9MSN for a long time and that work was often plagiarised. Um, wow. I mean, that's, yeah, it was often played. It ended up on all manner of random websites. And so that was quite interesting because basically every once in a while I would just simply run a search on I, half the time they were putting my name on it as well. A lot of the time it's people that don't understand that you can't just take words off somebody's right. website and put them on your own. Right. Um, so if that was the case, I would simply, you know, sick 9MSN onto them, which mm. was, you know, quite fun. It's a lot harder when it's you. My mm. thinking on it is, particularly with blogging, I mean, it's very, very difficult to police this kind of stuff. Mm. Um, I tend to think that if you put stuff on the internet, it's gone have no. you ha, have you had any instances where I understand that some of them, you know, uh, reproduce your story and put your name on it, mm. probably in ignorance that they shouldn't, they're not actually allowed to do that, but thinking that it's okay. But have you been in a situation where they've used your Someone story else and put, put their, their name, their own on name on it? Mm. Not, not that I'm aware of. I haven't, um, to be honest with you, I haven't sort of like put my blog through the plagiarism checker. Okay. Um, I. I just, yeah, no, I haven't. So maybe I should do that. Shall we do that right now and I'll see if anybody's <laughs> stolen my stuff? Well, I think the bizarre thing is... I have so much content now yes, on my yes. website. There is just so much of it that I it would be extremely difficult for me to keep track of, which is not to say that I am inviting anybody to, you know, go out there and, and put, my na- put their name on my stuff. But 
um, yeah, it would be hard for me to know even where to begin with some of that stuff. Well, interestingly, I, even though I did not use the plagiarism checker for this one, I mean, I'm a member of a number of LinkedIn groups, you know, of things that I'm interested in. Mm-hmm. And you know how you get those LinkedIn notifications of just the latest posts in that group. I one, po- one notification came up and it had a headline that was really familiar. And I thought, oh, isn't that funny? That's the exact headline I just used in my Sydney Morning Herald article. And, um, okay. and then I sort of decided I was almost going to just dismiss it and delete the email but then I thought I'll click on it and then I clicked on it and then I thought wow it sounds like the same ideas of my story then I read it further and it was exactly the same words and it was somebody who had taken exactly the same words and put their name on it and you know and just straight just basically ripped the story off the Sydney Morning Herald put their name on it and this was a real person in Sydney and it's like <laughs> do you think that maybe it's not like they were from Oregon or somewhere on the other side of the world it's somebody I could actually bump into with you know business events in Sydney or whatever and they thought that that would be okay <laughs> And what, what did you do in that instance? Like what, what's, what's the first step that you take if you come across something like that? I sent her an email. Is it a strongly worded email? Mm, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then I believe Fairfax sent her an even more strongly worded email. Right. Um, and the interesting thing is that she uh, was didn't – her response was not particularly remor- remorseful. She decided to make herself the victim there because she said that she had outsourced that piece of writing. <laughs> oh. <sighs> yeah. Anyway, of course, she refused to provide me with the details of who she outsourced it to. But anyway, got to move on. Got to move on. That's the trouble, unfortunately. As I say, like you, you put it on the internet and or you put it out there and it's out there, you know. And as you say, unless you are specifically checking for it, it's very, very hard to even discover that it's happened. But that's right. So maybe I'm putting my head in the sand. I don't want to know. <laughs> well, use the plagiarism checkup. I'm going to do that. I mean, that's, that's going to be my my um my my quest for the day. I'm going to check all my plagiarism. Which brings us almost to the end of our podcast for this week. Um, what are you going to be doing for the next week or so, Al? <laughs> Clearly, I'm checking for plagiarism. <laughs> Al, come on. <laughs> Uh, no, I'm not. I'm going to be finishing up my edits and um, hopefully I'm going to be getting started on book three of the Mapmaker Chronicles Woo-hoo! and I'm going to be preparing some presentations that I'm going to be doing in the in the next few weeks um, for the books. So it's all starting to get very, very real, Val. Yeah, and um, I'm starting to, yeah, it's exciting. Um, so yeah, that's what I'll be doing. I'll be getting excited, clearly. And you? Well, I'm also excited for different reasons because I'm going to uh, get organised to see Kathy Lett. Now, Kathy Lett um, is going to be touring Australia with business chicks, actually, mm. and going through to a number of different cities. So I'm keen to hear her speak because I grew up you know, reading Kathy Lett, you know. Yeah, yeah. I think everyone did. Yeah, Puberty Blues, you know. I'm from the Shire, just like (laughs) Kathy Lett. So I feel we're kindred spirits in a way. I remember actual words that she used in her articles when she used to write for Dolly and I was 13 years old and reading Dolly and I thought, wow, how cool, she's so funny. Anyway, um, so, yeah, I'm keen to see Kathy Lett. If anyone else is interested, we'll put the link in the show notes as well. But in the, in the meantime, um, we'd love to hear from you. You can connect with us on Twitter. What's your Twitter handle, Alison? I am at Al Tate. And that's T-A-I-T. And Correct. I'm at Valerie Koo. Um, but also you can find us on, what's your website? Uh, AlisonTate.com. I'm at ValerieKoo.com. And if you want to see the show notes, it's at writerscentercomau slash podcast in the meantime if you have a question uh that you would like us to answer on the podcast please do email us at podcast at writercenter.com.au and um we'd love to hear from you if you have the time to um leave a review on itunes we'd be really grateful as well because that does really help us with the rankings thank you to everyone for all your support with this oh, yeah, podcast. it's been fantastic yeah, yeah. you're all awesome yeah and um uh, we've got some even more exciting um, 
interviews and podcasts coming as coming up as well. So on that note, thanks everyone for listening. Bye. <laughs>